Hi everyone, I'm your host Ed Miller and welcome back to another episode of I One Two, the podcast that spotlights important role players from your favorite professional teams and their journey to becoming a champion. After six episodes, I'm excited to finally speak to a Major League Baseball player and this week's guest was on one of the greatest baseball teams ever assembled, the 1998 New York Yankees. He's also the first guest featured not to play in the postseason during the championship run. But don't worry, he was still an important part of the Yankees' success in 1998. Selected in the fourth round of the 1992 MLB draft, he spent five seasons in the big leagues, playing with both the Yankees and the Milwaukee Brewers, and six more in the Yankees' minor league system, which makes his journey to the show that much more impressive. He posted a 4-1 record as a long reliever with a 5.62 ERA in 24 games in 1998 and soon after advised Kevin Costner for the 1999 Sam Raimi film for Love of the Game. Now he's the athletic director at Army. So let's talk to today's guest, Mike Buddy. What is your earliest baseball memory growing up right outside of Cleveland? Huh. Man, what a good start, Ed. Um, so earliest memory would probably be um, getting a cherry milkshake after hitting my first home run that uh, somehow my dad was conned into thinking that every time I hit a home run, I would get a cherry milkshake. Uh, I ended up hitting quite a few uh, and uh, and got a quite a few milkshakes after the game. But, but that was probably the earliest thing was be, being so young you know, I had two older brothers, so uh, I, I remember a lot of their uh, achievements. But as, as far as my own first ones, being on the field would be going to Barnhill's Ice Cream Shop after hitting a home run uh, at Lou Groza Field back in Berea, Ohio. Did you make many trips up to Cleveland to uh, to check out some games and see the Indians? We did. Um, we, we did one trip a year. So you know, as I mentioned, two older brothers, my mom and dad. We, we would we would get tickets to a um, a day night doubleheader. So we would always pick the, that game because you basically get two games for the price of one. Uh, and we would go once, maybe twice in in a, in a summer, and it was always the biggest treat of the summer for us. Well, in high school, you were um, a state re- a state wrestling champion. You were also an all-state football player, and, and by the way, you played baseball. So was that based on interest, or, or what kind of an impact did high school sports have on you? Well, it had a huge impact. I mean, still does. Every, everything that I do, you can, you can trace back to the, the competitive spirit or the, the work ethic or whatever it might be. But, you know, as, as, as you mentioned, growing up just outside of Cleveland, Ohio, it's, it's a tougher baseball environment just because of the weather. Uh, and so it's, you know, nowadays, if, if you live in Sarasota, Florida, you know, you're going you're gonna to play 200 baseball games a year if you want. And, and where I grew up, you know, we would play 25 to 35, which turned out to be a blessing in disguise as I, as I became a pitcher. You know, I realized where, you know, some kids from Latin America or the South had probably thrown a thousand innings over their lifetime by the time they got to professional baseball, where I probably had thrown two or three hundred. And so the wear and tear on your shoulder and elbow was was kind of relieved growing up in that uh, in that type of setting. But I, I firmly believe that, that being a wrestler, uh, which is kind of a religion in Cleveland, Ohio, put me in a position to, to just mentally and physically be able to prepare probably at a level uh, that, that most professional baseball players it's just a gear that they don't have. 
and and so wrestling certainly prepared me for that. And then football, you know, I was I was on a really good football team, and I was a pretty good player. But but I saw the the grueling uh, what what it takes to play football in college, and so I kind of uh, I, I kind of knew that baseball was for me. It was where my passion was. It was where my heart lie. But um, but it was hard to get an opportunity, and so I I wanted to keep all my opportunities open. I wanted to, uh, to you know to win a couple state championships in wrestling, and we won a state championship in football. And and as you said, you know I, I also dabbled in baseball too. But that was that was a sport that I loved. Was a lot of it just wrestling filled the void because, like you said, you can't play baseball all year in Cleveland. So is it is it just I want to stay in shape? I'm gonna I'm gonna try out for this and kind of move on from football to base or from football to wrestling and right back into baseball. Yeah, a little bit of that, and then as I mentioned, I'm the youngest of three boys. So you know, if uh, when, when my oldest brother started wrestling and he was eight, you know, I would have been four. And you know, like all little brothers and little siblings, you kind of tag along and. Um, you know, mom and dad are are, are not uh, made of money, and so they're gonna they're gonna take all three boys to the same age group. And so it turned out for me, it was my oldest brother made the decision that that he wanted to wrestle in the winters. Had I known I was gonna be six foot three, you know, I, basketball might have made a little more sense. But you know, I was so young and I was tagging along, and um, just it worked out well. Interestingly enough, you know, wrestling is a unique sport in that there's age groups, and so. It's the one sport where my parents would take all three of the the buddy brothers, um, but I could wrestle against kids my own age. Where I used to play football and baseball on my brothers' teams as well. And so imagine being a a nine year old baseball player, but you're playing, you're measuring yourself against twelve and thirteen year olds, and that's kind of how how I was raised until a certain age. And then all of a sudden, I I found myself playing against kids the same age and realized that I was I was actually pretty pretty good. <laughs> Well, sometimes the trial by fire is the best way to go about doing it until you hit that age and you kind of you, you start gearing into everybody your same age. Yeah, no doubt. And and so, you know, I, again, I, I didn't want to be the best player on my team. I wanted to be the best player in the city. And um, again, when you're when you're four years younger and you have an ego and pride the, the way that three young Catholic kids from Cleveland do. Like for me, it was feel of fear of failure in a lot of ways. You know, I just when my brothers did something well, I wanted to do it better. And, you know, wrestling's a great example. When you lose a wrestling match, there's no excuses. You really can't blame anyone. You're out there half naked and you either uh, win the physical battle or you lose the physical battle. And so, you know, for me, a lot of it was just, you know, putting in the time uh, Monday through Friday so that on Saturday uh, you left the wrestling mat or the football field or the baseball diamond feeling pretty good about your effort. Well, you played multiple sports and uh, with such a distinct high school career, um, you probably had a lot of options coming out as far as colleges. Were there a lot of colleges knocking on your door? or Not as many as you would think. So so it's interesting. Um, again, this is, I graduated from high school in 1989. There were no showcases. There was no huddle film. There, were no, there was no internet. So you really kind of had to recruit yourself a little bit to get noticed. And, and it, it's a long story, but I'll give it to you as quickly as I can. My senior year of high school, our football team, we went 14-0. and We won the state championship in Ohio, the, the biggest school division. I was a split end, but I was more built like a tight end. And, and there were some Big Ten teams that had reached out to my coach and said, hey, we, you know, we'd like to talk to Mike. And, and I told my football coach, hey, I'm flattered. It's great, but I don't like to lift weights, and I'm a baseball player. I'm kind of like, you know, like Happy, Happy Gilmore was. You know, <laughs> hey, I'm a, I'm a hockey player, but today I'm playing golf. So I told all the football coaches, hey, I'm flattered, awesome, but don't worry about it, I'm going to play baseball in college. 
And then football season ended, wrestling season started. I won my second um, state championship there. Similar, every Big Ten wrestling coach had reached out to my high school coach and said, hey, we want to talk to Mike. And I said, hey, appreciate it. I'm honored, but I'm a baseball player. And so, and then, you know, baseball season rolled around and I had reached out to Stanford University and the University of Arizona. And, um, you know, like any kid in Cleveland or, or Philadelphia or New York, if you're a baseball player, you want to just go somewhere warm. And of course, my parents wanted me to go somewhere warm. That was a, a great education too. And uh, a teammate of mine um, had gone to Duke. And so I was really pushing to try to get on their radar. And, you know, again, they had to get on a plane and come up to Cleveland to watch me pitch. And it just wasn't a priority. And so I pitched my entire senior year of high school. Um, I lost the last game of my college, of my high school career. I was 10-0. and 0. My ERA was under 0.5. And I had two offers to come play baseball on partial scholarships. One was to Bowling Green and one was to Kent State. Both great schools, both really good programs, but both in the state of home. That's right. And and I was trying to get away from home. And and ironically, my dad went to Kent State and my mom went to Bowling Green. My middle brother was a junior at Stanford on the wrestling team. My oldest brother had just graduated from Duke. And I mentioned, you know, the ego and the pride factor. I, I... I wasn't going to be the younger brother, you know, Duke, Stanford and Bowling Green or Kent State. And, you know, that was the immaturity speaking because those programs, like I said, were great. So I swallowed my pride. My baseball season ended. I went to my wrestling coach and I said, hey, do you think some schools would still be interested? And he said, of course. And so I took a recruiting trip. Um, This is June after I had graduated from high school. I took a recruiting trip to Northwestern in Chicago Uh, The wrestling coach there was going to pay my scholarship with the understanding that as long as I fulfilled my obligations, I would be able to play baseball. And so I signed on the dotted line and then kind of relaxed. I knew I was going to Northwestern and figured, hey, I know how grueling college wrestling is because my brother was doing it and figured baseball was probably not in the cards. And so I enjoyed that last summer of baseball and I was pitching at a 4th of July tournament in Youngstown, Ohio. I was throwing 90, 91 miles an hour, and a, and a professional scout from the Pittsburgh Pirates came up to me after the game and said, hey, where are you uh, Where are you playing next year? I'll make sure our, our area scout watches and keeps an eye on you because you, you, you bloomed a lot just in this last year. And I said, I'm going to Northwestern to wrestle because I didn't get any offers in baseball. And he said, basically, you're kidding me, right? And he came back the next day and he said, hey, good friend of mine's a head coach at Wake Forest University in North Carolina. He just had a player drafted that he didn't expect to sign, and he signed, and he has a scholarship available. And so I called Northwestern back, and I said, hey, I'm, I feel terrible, but I'm not going to another Big Ten school to wrestle against you. Uh, I, something came through for baseball, and, and to his credit, Coach Suzuki, who's still at Northwestern, ironically, said, hey, man, good for you. Good luck. And, and that, was, that changed everything. So I ended up going to Wake Forest to play baseball, and it was the only school— outside of those two schools in the state of Ohio that, that actually gave me the opportunity. What was appealing to you about Wake Forest other than the fact of where it was located with the warm weather and whatnot? Well, the size. I mean, I, I, I like the small schools. I've, I've never been a big fan of sitting in a, in a classroom of, of 400 students. Both of my parents were educators, and so they like that academic reputation that Wake Forest had. As I mentioned, my oldest brother was at Duke, another ACC school right up the road. And, you know, he had he had nothing but good things to say about it. And then, honestly, you know, getting a chance to play ACC, ACC baseball, I knew I was not a, you know, a Georgia Tech, Clemson, you know, type of player. Um, my goal was 
to get to get a chance to compete against those teams because I knew if I got a chance to pitch at Clemson on a Friday night, there's going to be 40 scouts in the stands. Now they're going to be there to watch the Clemson players, but scouts are pretty bright guys. If they're if they're there, they're going to watch everybody that they see. And so I just wanted the opportunity, and I had a little bit of a chip on my shoulder, and uh, ended up working out really well. Not, not just for me, but you know for Wake Forest. I tell people it's kind of the worst recruiting story of all time. Like what what kind of baseball coach? offers a scholarship to a kid seven states away that he'd never seen, not, not, not forget seeing me pitch. He had never seen me. Like he didn't know. Um, but you know, he trusted the scout who saw me. He said, Hey, he's six, three, he's 200 pounds. And he, 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 he won wrestling matches and football games. And I think, you know, that was enough for this coach to take a, a bit of a, a risk. And, you know, coach George Greer was the Wake Forest head coach. And I've, I've kept in touch with him for 30 years now because, you know, he kind of, he went out on a limb for me, and you, you, you never forget those types of people that, that give you opportunities in life. Now, while you were at Wake Forest, um, you also played summer ball in Cape Cod. So how did you balance all that extra pitching to ensure that you didn't either strain yourself or, or just kind of overdo it? Well, you trust your coaches, first and foremost. And, and I did have some issues. My sophomore year at Wake Forest, I, I missed about a month and a half. Um, and again, to the to the medical staff's credit, um, I probably could have missed two to three weeks, uh, but they knew at that point that I was a, a draftable player. And so when I told them I was 100%, they made me wait another three weeks to make sure that I was. Um, because I did, you know, as I mentioned, you, you come in, you know, I probably threw 40 innings in high school and I threw 100 innings my freshman year at Wake Forest. Uh, I was in the weekend rotation. And then I went to Cape Cod and, you know, you, you try to impress everybody there and throw as hard as you can and do all the, the, the things that you shouldn't do. And, and honestly, you know, my first year in, in the Cape, we had we had pitchers from Michigan and, and Florida and uh, Notre Dame and, you know, some, some a couple kids from Stanford. And so there weren't a lot of innings for me to get. And that turned out to be a good thing. So I came out of the bullpen and um, just kind of filled in when I needed to. And then the second year, as I had said, I had missed about a month and a half of the season. So when I got to the Cape Cod League that summer, you know, I was in the rotation and I pitched a lot more. Um, but again, my arm was still young in terms of having, you know, innings pitched under my belt. Uh, it was the first time when I got to college, it was the first time I had a real pitching coach. You know, my high school coach was awesome. He was an English teacher and they gave him an extra couple thousand dollars to coach baseball. So he didn't know grips and pressure points and, you know, balance drills and all these things. So when I got to Wake Forest and had real, you know, full-time coaches that, that knew the ins and outs of pitching, um, that talked about nutrition, that, that there was, I wasn't lifting weights like a tight end and a, and a wrestler. I was lifting weights like a pitcher. And so all of those things really sped up my, my development um, in every aspect. In that Cape Cod League, how would you compare the talent there to what you were facing in college? Was it a little more elevated? Was it a little more of a, of a challenge? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, the Cape Cod League to me was kind of a double A league because there are just no, there, there's no one there who's overmatched. You know, you can't hide in Cape Cod. And so it is, every team is a, is an all-star team of college talent. The the huge advantage for pitchers is that it's a wooden bat league. And, you know, in college, that's a, that's a huge advantage for pitchers. Hitters just aren't used to the timing and the the weight of a wooden bat, and and uh, you can you can break a lot of bats and, and get a lot of people out, which is why it's such a valuable tool for for big league scouts to see. Because if you can hit in the Cape Cod League as a as a day to day player, that's a huge sign that you're gonna you're gonna be able to excel at the next level. 
but yeah, it was just a, it was a great opportunity. There's no weak spots. I mean, you got you got kids in coming out of the bullpen, backup infielders who are going to be top ten draft picks, and so it, it was great. It, it kind of illustrated for me that I belonged. It was kind of the first sign. I knew I had some good games at Wake Forest. Um, we had a decent team, but we couldn't get over the hump. And going to Cape Cod and seeing kids from you know Florida, Florida State, Texas, and realizing you know, hey, this kid was seventeen and four at Texas, but he really kind of has the same repertoire that I do. He's just a lot more confident. And so um, that really helped springboard you to the next level. How would you describe your game at that point in time? If you were a scout and you were looking back on yourself, how would you describe your game? Uh, still raw. I mean, I, I, I threw pretty hard. Um, I could get the ball to move quite a bit, but but I was not Greg Maddox. I mean, it was not a he didn't give me a, a three inch by three inch target and expect me to hit it. I was I was aiming down the middle of the plate and hoping that it would just be a strike instead of you know some of these other guys that were a little more polished that, that were aiming at the outer third or even fourth of the plate. You know, pitching on the black, um, I was pitching on the white, um, and so for me it was just a matter of a lack of repetition at that point. Probably a little bit more. You know, I approached it as an athlete. I approached it as a wrestler, and sometimes you try to. You get your adrenaline up. Um, and sometimes, you know, baseball, there's a great saying, you know, trying harder is not always the answer. Sometimes trying easier is the answer. And so, you know, I would get amped up in pressure situations and try to throw harder, which made the ball go straighter and actually made the ball not the velocity not as high. And so, you know, it took me a while to learn what some other more veteran pitchers already knew. And that was, you know, finesse is just as important as power. And you know that was that and was you a can lesson make a that, career out of that. You know you don't have to throw heat all the time. You can you can if you hit your spots, you can be a successful and and have a lengthy career. You know Andy Pettit is a, a perfect example. Andy and I played together in the minor leagues, and you know he went on to be a an all star player and probably a Hall of Famer. But Andy Pettit could throw ninety five. Um, he did throw ninety five in in the minor leagues, but he realized ninety five and guessing where it goes and having it be straight pretty much doesn't matter if you can throw 88 and put it exactly where you want it with a little movement, you know, and Tom Glavin, you know, was, was similar. Tom Glavin just knew it didn't matter. The difference between an 88 mile an hour fastball and a 95 mile an hour fastball is really nothing to a, to a major league hitter. Like it's all the same. And so they learned that if you can control your, your velocity and your location, 88 is just as good as 95. You were drafted in the fourth round. Uh, can you walk me through your draft day experience, where you were, and, and how you got the news? It was obviously a lot different in those days. Yeah, and it's a it's a terrible, it's a horribly great story. So you know, I left I left Wake Forest after my junior year. I remember we we, we ended our season at the uh, the North Carolina Tar Heel Invitational, and and I sat. Uh, the head coach called me up to the front seat uh, on the drive back to campus and said, "Hey, you know, what are you thinking?" You know, all the scouts that I've talked to have you, you know, anywhere from the 6th to the 12th round. You know, you're ready. You know, you've, you've done a great job. I was ahead of schedule to graduate. And, you know, to his credit, he just said, hey, I'd love to have you back for another year. But, you know, you're not going to you're not going to be in any better position than you are now. So and that was the first time that I really had heard anything like 6th to 12th round. So so that kind of got me pretty pumped up. I, I was, I, I guess, a little um a little too humble. I, I didn't realize exactly where I was. I didn't know if I was a 20th round pick or, you know, a first round pick. And so, you know, that was kind of the first light bulb that went off. And, and I had had a bunch of meetings and phone conversations with scouts. So I knew the Colorado Rockies liked me. I knew the Pittsburgh Pirates liked me. Growing up in Cleveland, I, I, I hoped that the Indians would like me. 
But I had probably spoken to scouts from a dozen major league organizations, and the Yankees were not one of them. I, I didn't even know that they had come to see me play. And so you talk about draft day, you know, it is, uh, there was no internet, there was no television, ESPN was fledgling. And so it was literally, you hang out and hope that your phone rings. And it, by the way, it's not a cell phone. It's the, you know, the, the phone on the wall in the kitchen. It's the bat phone. That's right. <laughs> and so, you know, I was working back in my hometown of Berea, Ohio. I was a, a lifeguard and a um, umpire and I was staying in shape. And that day I took the day off because I knew the draft started at noon I figured I was not going to be a first or second rounder. And then, you know, by, by two o'clock, maybe I would, you know, hear something. And and so I just kind of was doing the nervous energy, walking around the house, you know, wearing my glove and throwing a ball up and down and doing sit-ups. And, and five o'clock rolled around and the phone had not rang yet. And so five o'clock, the phone rings. I run over and it's, uh, it's Demon, um, Dan Montgomery, who's a scout for the Colorado Rockies in the North Carolina area. And I was just like, sweet. I said, what's going on? He said, hey, I'm just calling to check in on you. Have you, you know, have you gotten any word? And I said, no, like, isn't that why you're calling? <laughs> and he said, uh, well, he said, it, it, you know, it was silent. And he was like, um, man, well, that's weird because, you know, they're on the 12th round and I had turned you in. So I just, I was calling to congratulate you because we didn't take you. And I figured somebody must have taken you. And I said, well, no, I hadn't, I hadn't gotten a call. And he said, all right, well, I'll let you know if I hear anything. And then about an hour later, 6 p.m., phone rings again. It's a guy from the Cincinnati Reds. Same call saying, hey, you know, I had you high on my board. I, you know, I just want to call and check in with you. I really liked meeting you and watching you pitch. And I said, dude, let me off the hook. Like, what are you hearing? He said, man, I'm, sure, I'm pretty sure somebody took you. Well, 9.30 that night, the phone rings, and it's Brian Sabian, who's the general manager of the New York Yankees at the time. The New York Yankees, as in typical Yankee fashion, they were the only team that waited until the end of the, the first day. So they, they drafted, I think there was 14 rounds on the first day or something. They drafted all four, well, actually, they, they drafted 12 of the 14 rounds um, because they didn't have a second and third round pick that year. And then they huddle up and then they call everybody kind of like in an assembly line. So so I get the call, Brian Sabian saying, hey, I just want to let you know, welcome to the Yankee family. Um, your area scout, Jeff Taylor, is going to be in touch. But I just wanted to reach out and let you know that that we selected you and we, we couldn't be more happy. Can't wait to see you in pinstripes. Hang up the phone, you know, like like everybody. My mom and dad are two feet away from me. And they say, well, who was it? And I said, well, what's the one team that you don't want me to say? you know, being true Cleveland Indians fans. And they both said, oh, the Yankees. And I said, yep. And they said, well, what round? And I said, I have no idea. I forgot to ask. So we Well, at that we point, around. you're so pumped up just to be, just to make it, you know, it's like, no it doubt. could have been round one or it could have been round 20. It doesn't matter. Absolutely right. And so, you know, so, so Jeff Taylor calls about 10 minutes later and says, you know, hey, we, I'd like to come visit you. And, and I said, well, what round did you take me in? He said, the fourth round. And I said, you know, to myself, holy cow, that's better than I would have ever imagined. And I said, you know, just, you know, if you don't mind me asking, did I, did I meet you? And he said, nope. He said, I saw you pitching 13 games, but I stayed in the background and just enjoyed watching you pitch. I brought, I brought my immediate boss and our national boss and we saw you pitch at the ACC tournament. And, and so, you know, it just goes to show you, you never know who's watching and, you know, what, what impression you might be making on people because I had no idea. And it was, a life-changing moment for me. 
is it fairly common for a scout like that to just keep his head down and, and watch a whole bunch of games without introducing himself? It is. It, it, it was back then. I mean, it was, you know, old school guys that, you know, sleep with tobacco in their mouth and, you know, have a, have a McDonald's coffee, you know, 13 of them throughout the day and they just watch baseball. And so, you know, they, they knew what they were looking for. The Yankees had a very specific body type and velocity um, minimums at the time. And so, you know, I fit what they were looking for. They liked my my three sport background. And um, but, yeah, it's, uh, I think it's it's less prominent now. But back then it was kind of a, you know, they, they stay in the shadows and, and do their job. And and again, they, they just turn your name in. But somebody somebody in the room has to kind of agree with that scout. And I was fortunate that that the Yankees agreed and took a chance on me. Everyone wants to make it to the show. But what expectations did you have once you were drafted? I mean, obviously, everybody wants to come in. Everybody wants to wants to win a World Series. But what real expectations did you have after you got that phone call? Well, when I, when I first got the phone call, I, I had pretty high expectations because the Yankees in the mid to late 90s, or the mid 90s, or actually, I'm sorry, that was 1992. So late 80s, early 90s, they were not very good. So, you know, they had Don Mattingly, who was a, a rock star, but they didn't have success as a team. And so when I got that call, I thought, hey, you know what? The Yankees aren't that great. You know, there might be a faster way to, to kind of to get to the major leagues. Um, but I also had three and a half years of college under my belt. And so... I knew the numbers. I knew how hard it was to make it. I knew how uh, often pitchers can get injured and their careers are over, you know, in a blink of an eye. And so my thought was, you know, that night was I'm going to pitch 10 years in the big leagues and and buy a boat. But that quickly fades into reality. And again, having two older brothers telling you that you're terrible to keep you to keep you grounded. I thought, you know what, if nothing else, I'll do this for three or four years. I can tell my kids and my grandkids that I played pro ball. And if I'm smart, I'll make some really good relationships and maybe parlay this into a front office opportunity. Um, I didn't think that I wanted to coach necessarily because um, the the nights and the the weekends and the you know the, the crazy hours that coaches have. But I did think the front office route would be something with my my education and my background that that, that would be a potential path for me. You get drafted by a team that you you don't like growing up as a Cleveland fan, which which makes complete sense. But were you happy to go to a franchise that was kind of dripping with nostalgia? Does it matter to you at that point of of going to a a team that's as as stacked as the Yankees with all the championships, as opposed to a, a team that's just starting out? Yeah, it matters a ton. Um, I didn't know to the extent that it mattered um, at the time, but um, so I draft I, I I was drafted June of ninety two. I signed. Three days later, I went to a mini camp for four or five days just to, to stay in shape. And then I went to Oneonta, New York, which is the short season New York Penn League team. And we check in and, you know, the, the trainers are there. And, you know, the entire minor league system is built on earning your keep, right? And so, you know, they, they give you the most ornery clubhouse guy, trainer, managers in low A, just to, just to, to, to make you hungry for the opportunity. And the guy looks at me and says, what size waist? And I said, 34. And he said, all right. Here, here, he said, you like your pants long or short? And I said, I don't, you know, whatever. So he throws me a pair of pants and he says, try these on. So I pull them up and I look in the inseam and it's stitched in there, Winfield. And I've said, holy cow, you know, I'm wearing Dave Winfield's pants. Yeah. And it's things like that when you're in the Yankee organization that you just kind of think, all right, you know, I'm, I'm not at Wake Forest anymore. I'm not at St. Ignatius High School in Cleveland. Like I'm wearing Dave Winfield's pants. And then you go to spring training with them and, 
you know, they invite all the legends back. So you're sitting in the bullpen between Ron Guidry and Goose Gossage talking about how they hold their two-seam fastballs. And it's little things like that. You just realize, you know, and by the way, I didn't dislike the Yankees. They just were good and they always eliminated my team. And so all of my friends from that point on said, hey, you know, we, we don't hate the Yankees. We just, you know, we just wish that the Indians would win every once every hundred years or so. And then, you know, later in my career, I end up with the Milwaukee Brewers. And I tell this story all the time where, you know, when I got called up to the big leagues, um, it was the third third game of the season in 1998. And I, I get called up, they're on the road in Seattle. And so I get there in the middle of the game, we finish the game, go back to the hotel. The next morning I get to the field three hours early because as a rookie, you better be there early. And there's already there's already fans in the stands. They had, they had opened the gates for for um, the Yankees batting practice. By the time we started batting practice, there was about five thousand fans in the stadium. And I remember looking around, thinking, "Man, the big leagues are awesome! Like, there's five thousand people that come to watch batting practice." And it wasn't until you know two years, three years later, when I'm with the Milwaukee Brewers, and I go to Pittsburgh, you know, and we're we're having batting practice, and there's nobody in the stadium. And and you know, I realized. Oh, it's not the major leagues that are just that exceptional. It's the New York Yankees that are that exceptional. And, and it was that type of following everywhere we went. Every time we went to a, the first day in a new city, you know, the, uh, the, the, the an rich and famous. People want to see them. Go, yeah, going to Anaheim as a New York Yankee and you walk into the locker room and Milton Berle and, you know, Tom Hanks and Wayne Gretzky are in the locker room saying, hey, these people want you to sign some stuff for their kids. And you're thinking kidding me? Wayne Gretzky wants me to sign something? But yeah, it was, you know, they're kind of like the Lakers of, you know, the 80s where they were the show when you traveled. And and that team in 98, my rookie year, turned out to be kind of baseball's version of that team. Well, I'm going to get to 98, but but you meant, mentioned Goose Gossage. And do you just soak everything up like a sponge? When you see, he might not be directly talking to you, he might be talking to two or three players down. But is it one of these things where you're watching, you're taking notes, and you're making you're making mental notes of what he's saying, and just kind of soaking it all in, so that hopefully it can kind of up your game? Oh, absolutely, and and not not just what he's saying, but how he's saying it. And so, you know, again, those guys are so um, they're such good dudes. You know, they're 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 there for a reason. They're sharing their secrets. They're telling you what worked. Now, again, I'm sitting here thinking, all right, I throw 93 on a good day. You know, Goose Gossage just used to get up there with a mustache and throw 97. He didn't have to worry about sliders and change-ups and, you know, location. He was just like, I'm just going to get you out. And so you have to kind of, you you know, you, you you translate that through when you're listening to it saying, all right, just because it works for Rich Gossage doesn't mean it's going to work for Mike Buddy. But how cool is it that he's just sitting here calling me, asking me about my wife and, you know, my family and my upbringing. I was like, dude, you're Goose Gossage. Like, what do you care about Mike Buddy? Um, so those were the cool parts of, you know, that whole crew, Whitey Ford and Yogi Berra and Ron Guidry, Ron Guidry and Mickey Rivers, and they, they just were accessible. And it made you kind of just like, you know, that first summer on the Cape Cod League where you realize, hey, you know what, they're just normal guys. And, and they're going to they're here to help you any way they can. It just kind of calms your nerves. It, it makes you feel like, you know, maybe you do belong here because, you know, there's a there's a there's a, a steep learning curve and a steep you know just a, a mental psychological game that you have to realize, especially you know on some teams that I was on where you're like, you know, do I really belong in this group? Like this this is a pretty damn good team. How did I find myself here? And so 
you know, having, having those legends of the game that just kind of talk to you about things off the field are really valuable. Well, you went through a lot of spring trainings before actually breaking with the Yankees. And the life of a minor leaguer is fascinating to someone that, that has no baseball expertise. And uh, is it is it a lot like we see on screen? I mean, how, how do you describe the life of a minor league pitcher year in and year out? I mean, it's a challenge, right? It's, um, you know, I, as, I, as you mentioned, I was a fourth round pick in 92. Um, the Yankees had, had traded away their second and third round pick. So I was the second player that they took. The first player that they took was a shortstop from Michigan named Derek Jeter. And so you, do, you, you don't want to compare yourself to that person, right? Because for every Derek Jeter, there's 500 Nick Delvecchios and Mike Buddies and, you know, Mike Dijon's. And, you know, we didn't, we didn't show up, you know, and three years later, you know, we, we got a little stronger and we're rookie of the year. So, you know, I think back to my teammates, my classmates um, that came in that 92 class with me, you know, some of them lasted two seasons, some of them lasted four, some of them lasted eight, some of them lasted 20. But the grind, um, it's the, the mental wear and tear is brutal. So, you know, my first year I mentioned in Oneonta, New York, I made $850 a month before tax. And so, you know, keep in mind, I have two roommates. One is from Lafayette College in Pennsylvania. The other one was a Harvard graduate. So he was a a senior draft. So he had a Harvard degree uh, and was trying to, to play professional baseball. And so, you know, that guy, he was a first baseman, Nick Delvecchio, Harvard graduate. He would go three for four, in Oneonta, New York, and and have us all convinced that he was he was a week or two away from playing first base in the Bronx, and then you go you know zero for five the next night and zero for four the night after that, and you're just like, what am I doing? I got a Harvard degree, I'm zero for nine. I may never get another hit in my life, and so that mental roller coaster is is a, a just a it it sounds cliche, but it is just hard to to stay in it long enough to develop. And give your shot. Give yourself a shot at getting a call up. Yeah, it sounds like you're kind of living and dying by each game almost, which isn't the way to look at it. But you can't help it if you have a bad game; it dwells with you. And you have, if you have a good game, you think that a week later you're going to be up. It's human nature. I mean, it's human nature. You you make yeah, and you you play games within yourself. You play mind games with yourself. You know, you you get a hitting coach because by the way, you can go two to two for four with two broken bat bleeding ground balls and the next night you go 0 for 4 with four line drives and you think the 2 for 4 was the good night and so you realize quickly and I had the luxury of being a you know a fourth round pick and so the Yankees had invested in me they'd given me a signing bonus and so I knew I kind of had this little safety net well my roommate from from Lafayette College who was a 28th round pick his numbers were way better than mine but he threw 88 and I threw 94 and so you know they the Yankees kind of knew that hey 88 is going to be tough for him to to make it into the American League East. But, you know, I had some stuff that, in theory, if I could get my act together, I could, I could contribute in the American League East. And so, you know, you don't realize that when you're in single A, but, you know, you, you, you know my, my teammates were taking out loans to try to get that next year, one more year of playing. And, um, you know, so it's, it's tough. You get stories and experiences that last you a lifetime, but a lot of guys go into some serious debt um, just for the opportunity to continue uh, to, to chase that dream. Well, when you're pushing three, four seasons, when does it start to come to your mind of like, maybe I should really consider, like, I'm on the road a lot, I'm not making a ton of money, 
when is it like maybe I should think about packing up and heading home? It depends on your situation. Um, a lot of times if you fall in love or you get married or, or you start having children, it makes that decision easier. Um, you know, I, I, I made friends with a lot of guys from Latin American countries um, and actually a couple uh, Asian players as well. Uh, the Latin American players, they, 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 they have it figured out. And, and, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but, you know, I've talked to Santiago, Sandy Santiago and Abdiel Cumberbatch, and they said, hey, Mike, we don't necessarily have food if we go back to Panama. So we are going to scratch and claw to keep this uniform on our back as long as humanly possible. And so, you know, for them, th- they're going to keep playing. And, and that's a great attitude to have in the minor leagues because they were laser focused and they knew that it could change their lives. And you, you, you contrast that to, to Nick, who's got a Harvard degree in his back pocket. He's not going to fight through adversity probably at the same level that some of these other kids do. And so, you know, those are great lessons. And, you know, I was, I was fortunate that I, I did get married, but I had a very supportive spouse. And really, you just want to see incremental improvement. And so I, I was given the opportunity to come to instructional league and get, you get to know the, the major league staff a little bit. Um, my second, after my second year in pro ball, the strike happened, the 1994 player strike. And so, you know, you're, you're in your dugout and Buck Showalter is sitting there watching you and you're thinking, all right, well, this is, this is the real manager for the New York Yankees. So this is an opportunity. And so you play these little games and think, all right, you know what, if I can win 10 games in single A, I'll probably get the chance to move up to double A and you know, I spent two full seasons in double A and went back for a third before I got an opportunity to, to make it to triple A in Columbus, where you can actually start making a living. You know, you're making almost $2,100 a month at that level, which, by the way, you only get paid during the season, which is six months long. So when I first made it to triple A, I thought I had hit the jackpot and I made $13,000 that year. You were drafted, as you mentioned, with, with Derek Jeter, and you kind of came up with him in the minors. Was it evident then what he was capable of and what he would go on to be? So I'll say this. The first season we played together was 1993 in Greensboro. And, and, and no, I, I didn't see it. Um, we had heard about it. And again, I, I'm not a scout and none of us were. We just knew that this kid was skinny. Um, he wasn't very strong. He had a phenomenal arm, but he threw it into the, the bleachers as often as he threw it to the first baseman. Um, you know, at the time, they didn't know it, but, you know, certainly over the years, you, you, you talk to him at a deeper level. And, you know, I read his book and he was he was brutally homesick, you know, and that was a that was a team in 1993. You know, Mariano Rivera was in the rotation. Ramiro Mendoza was in the rotation and I was in the rotation. And um, we had almost all college kids. And then Derek was, you know, he was our shortstop. He was 19. You know, he still hadn't filled out physically, you know, and we're going out to get a beer after the game and he can't. Um, you know, A, he didn't drink and B, he was 19. And so, yeah. you know, looking back, we probably weren't the best teammates because, you know, he was he was different and, and he was he was a bonus baby, which puts a target on your sleeve, you know, kind of on your back in, in a major league or a minor league dugout. What do you mean by bonus baby? So he had, he, he got a huge signing bonus. So he signed for one point six million, I think, at the time, which which was a huge amount of money still is. Um, you know, and the rest of us, we signed for $100,000 or less. And, you know, most of the guys on the roster signed for $2,000. So you look at him differently because he's essentially got a meal ticket already where you guys are still kind of scrounging to make ends meet and whatnot. Absolutely. So absolutely. And there's, you know, there's, there's some jealousy and some, some concern. But, but he quickly, 
he won over his teammates because he worked his butt off um, and he was the first one there. And, you know, he, he knew, you know, he went, after a long road, uh, road trip, he would buy pizzas for the entire team and, you know, just little things like that. Um, and we just saw that, that he worked hard. But, but to your original question, you, you would not have seen him in 1993 and said, man, that guy's going to be a, a, a first ballot Hall of Famer. The next year, so, so what Derek did was when 1993, when that season ended, we all went back home, right? We go, we go bartend and wait tables or, you know, knock out another semester of college or whatever it is. Derek made the decision to, to rent a condominium in Tampa and he went in, he treated it like a job, which is absolutely common now, but he was the first person, at least in the Yankee organization, he was the first minor league player to ever do that. You know, usually the minor league, the minor league complex kind of closes down unless you're a, a Latin American guy or you're getting ready to go play winter ball. But Derek stayed in Tampa. He was in the weight room every day. He was in the batting cage every day. And so 1994, when we came back and we went to Tampa, uh, the single A team in the Florida State League, he was our shortstop and he was a different ball player. And it was quickly at All-Star break that year. Uh, the team was phenomenal. Um, I was I was 10-0 and at All-Star break and my ERA was terrible. But we scored so many runs. All you had to do was pitch five innings and you were going to get a win. And, and Derek was hitting like 340, and the the errant throws from shortstop to first base were gone. And he was a he was a quiet leader. You know, he went from being the quiet high school kid to kind of the the the, the backbone of that team. And then uh, after All Star break, he was in Double A, ended the season in Triple A. Uh, and again, that was the year of the strike. So then '95, he went back, got a September call up, and Rookie of the Year in '96. And so uh, it took him a year. And it was a rough year for him, uh, uh, by all accounts. But but in '94, there it was no doubt that he was he was something special. I watched a, an interview with you, and you said you had what was described as a fire drill during your time in Double A, as as Andy Pettit was dealing with some arm soreness in 1996. How did it feel to be basically kind of on call, and you had to be ready at a drop of the hat? Does that make it tougher on you? Yeah, I mean, it was it was a crazy 24 hours. Um, you know, and again, this is before cell phones. So, so we're on a bus from Norwich, Connecticut to Bowie, Maryland, and the manager's buzzer goes off, you know, the, a pager literally on his belt buckle, which means you got to call, call the GM. So we pull off to a rest stop. He goes off. Um, I had been pitching pretty well, but there was no, you know, I was in double A, so it's rare to get called up from double A to the big leagues. Usually you, know, you spend some time in triple A and and Jim Essien was our manager, and he gets back on the bus and gives me the, hey, come up here, I need to talk to you. And he says, hey, you know, Andy Pettit's elbow's been stiff for two days. He's got 19 wins. He, he wants to get a 20th win, but um, they don't think they're going to let him pitch. So, you know, when we get to Baltimore, we're going to drop you off at the airport. You're going to fly to Minnesota to meet the team. And so, you know, I didn't have a sport coat. Like in the minor leagues, you travel in shorts and a collared shirt. And to the, in the big leagues, you better have pants and a sport coat. So I, I literally borrowed a pair of pants from my roommate and a sport coat from Shane Spencer, who was on that team. I don't know why he had a sport coat, but thank God he did. So I get to Minnesota the next day. I, you know, I get dropped off at the Metrodome and I'm like, where do I go? Yeah, it's like the first day of school. Yeah. And, and so and I had never been to a major league spring training. So I knew I knew Andy Fox and I knew. Andy Pettit, and I knew Derek Jeter. And I think those were the only three guys on that team that, that I knew. 
And, and what made it worse was Andy didn't know that they had called me. So I walk into the locker room and Andy Pettis like, what the heck are you doing here? And I said, well, um, I guess I'm on standby. <laughs> and he said, man, Mike, I am so sorry. They're, they're so freakish, freakishly panicked about me. He said, I feel fine. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to pitch tonight. And I was just like, well, damn it. You know, hey, can you can you hook hook me up and just say you got a little tenderness? And and honestly, if he if he didn't have 19 wins, he, he might have considered that. And I didn't say that. But so I put on my uniform. I go out to stretch and get loose with the team. I sit in the bullpen while while Andy goes through his warm up warm up routine. He's fine. They send me back inside because they, they there was no transaction. They, they didn't purchase my contract. They weren't going to unless Andy couldn't pitch. And so they said, hey, sorry, this sucks. But because you're not on the roster, you can't be in uniform. So here's a ticket to the game. You can watch it from the third floor. And That's rough. And here's your plane ticket. Here's your plane ticket back to Bowie, Maryland. And so the next morning I get up, go back to Bowie, Maryland. The, my double-A team had been rained out, so I didn't even miss a start in double-A. I pitched that night against Bowie in a doubleheader, which was seven innings. Minor league doubleheaders were seven innings. And the guy throws a no-hitter against me. I lose one nothing. But the, the biggest takeaway, Ed, was I, I just remember being on that flight back to Bowie thinking, if that's the closest I ever get to the major leagues, that, that's going to be a challenge for me for the rest of my life, you know, to not question every decision and every move. And, you know, thank God it, was, it wasn't the only opportunity I got. Well, it's kind of bizarre because in 1998, you're the last guy cut from spring training. And, and then how did you... How did you wind up making it up to the Yankees at that point? Did you get a call from Brian Cashman a few games in, and that's how you made your way to Seattle? That's exactly right. And so what's really odd is, you know, the major league season starts about 10 days before the minor league season. And so, as you mentioned, I was the last player cut. So the Yankees opened on the West Coast. They opened in Anaheim. But when they broke spring training in Tampa, they flew to San Diego. They did an exhibition game against San Diego State and an exhibition game against the San Diego Padres before the season started. So they took me with them on the trip. So I went from Tampa to San Diego. I pitched against San Diego State. They kept me around in case somebody got hurt or sick. That didn't happen. So we bust to Anaheim. We watched the Final Four. Joe Torre calls me in and says, hey, man, you had a great spring. Obviously, you didn't make the team, but you know, here's your plane ticket. We're going to play the Anaheim A's Angels tomorrow, and you are going to fly back to Tampa. You're getting your frequent flyer miles. Yeah, yeah. So think. So literally, I get back to Tampa and do the last three days of spring training, and we break as a AAA team, and we drive from Tampa to Columbus, Ohio. I stop at my in-law's house in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, to break up the trip. And um, wake up the next morning, and the phone rings, and it's Brian Cashman. And... They had been trying to find me for hours, but, you know, again, no cell phones. They, somebody knew that I was stopping at my, my in-laws. And Brian Cashman got a hold of me and said, hey, man, Mariano Rivera tweaked his hamstring. We need you on a plane. What's the nearest airport? We got to get you to Seattle. So, so I go to the Greensboro Airport. I fly to Seattle. So, so think about this eight-day stretch, right? I go from Tampa to San Diego, bus to L.A., fly from L.A. to Tampa, get in the car, drive to North Carolina, and fly to Seattle. I get to the game in the top of the fifth inning. I'm pitching the bottom of the seventh. Did you have any time for jet lag, or was that just completely out of your mind because at that, like, you're kind of running on adrenaline of making it to the team, and you've been all across the United States at that point. Is, is your butt dragging? Certainly not that night. 
adrenaline took over, um, you know, and that was the that, that was the the Seattle team that had Ken Griffey Jr. and Alex Rodriguez and Jay Buhner and um, Edgar Martinez. Like it, it was a rock star lineup, and so I had to pitch that night. I gave up four runs in my debut, and it, it's it's all a blur, literally for 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 lots of reasons. And most most debuts are a blur, but. Did you have a lot of butterflies? You know what? I, I I don't feel like I did, but, you know, Joe Girardi came out to the mound after my seven warm-up pitches and said, hey, yeah, you know, let's just get this out of the way. He said, you know, bite your tongue. It'll get your mouth to water. You know, don't, don't be nervous. And I thought, all right, he must think I'm nervous. And all of a sudden I thought, maybe I should be nervous. And I threw the first pitch. Edgar Martinez was the first major league hitter I faced. First pitch, geographic dead center of the strike zone. Ball one. You know, it's the it's the age old umpire trick. Let's see how the rookie responds to me just absolutely screwing him. And so it was ball one right down the middle. I just thought, all right, here we go. You know, the reigning AL MVP is batting and I throw a ball right down the middle and, and he calls it a ball. And so wouldn't trade it for the world. It was it was a heck of a trip. And um, and it was it was the start to a 1998 season that was crazy because we lost that night. And at the time we were one in four. Um, actually, we lost the next night to get to one and four. And David Cohn, the infamous, uh, the infamous closed door. Uh, that's it. Uh, after the game, that's it. Yeah. So, you know, I we were um, we were losing four to one when I came in to pitch. They scored four runs late against me. So we lost that game eight to one. And David Cohn kicked everybody out of the locker room except the players and just closed the door and just said, "What's going on?" You know, everybody thought we were going to win the American League East. It's one thing to lose a couple games, you know, and everybody's just like, well, we're not panicking. We're one and three or one and four. But I, I just think it kind of made everybody relax and cleared the air a little bit. And uh, I forget what it was, but we went like 18 and three over the next 21 games. And uh, and it was it was a full season of just win after win after win after win. Was anybody else outspoken in that or was it pretty much well um, David Cohn took the helm and everybody else listened or did anybody else kind of back him up on that? Yeah, certainly. Um, Paul O'Neill was pretty vocal. Um, Daryl Strawberry was kind of uh, just a, the, kind of the, the unofficial heart and soul of that team. You know, he was on his comeback trail and um, just had, had so, so much respect from, from the guys because of his humility and, you know, what he, where he had been and what he had done and, and honestly, what he could still do, he was just a physical freak. And they kind of all took center stage. You know, it wasn't, you know, Jeter wasn't very vocal. You know, he kind of just did his thing on the field and, and set the tone from a work ethic standpoint. But Paul O'Neill, for sure, was was pretty vocal. Uh, but Cone was kind of the, the the one who started the conversation. Well, you basically got that roster spot because Mariano Rivera missed a few weeks. Um, he's just starting on the path to being great. Uh, did you feel that you had big shoes to fill to I know there's other guys on the team at that point but the reason you're basically there at that time is because of Rivera did you feel like you had big shoes to fill no not at all um yeah and you're exactly right so John Wetland had been the closer Mariano was setting up for Wetland until that season and that was Mariano's first year really to be the guy um as the closer uh, or was still filling into that role and so, you know, they didn't call me up to be the closer, right? They, Mariano got hurt, and they took Mike Stanton, who was the setup guy, made him the closer, and Jeff Nelson, who was the setup guy, kind of became the, the late-inning guy. So everybody bumped up a rung on the, on the ladder. And for, for me, there wasn't any pressure because, you know, I, I, uh, I was the last guy cut. I was making the major league minimum on a roster of people who were all 8-, 10-, 12-year veterans, 
And I knew my role. I mean, my role on that team, I, I, I tell people that I was the 10 guy. If we had a 10-run lead, I pitched the rest of the game. If we were down by 10 runs, I pitched the rest of the game. Or if we got to the 10th inning and there was no other options, I pitched. And I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but you know, I ended up winning four games because I would come into a game in the fifth inning when our starter had a bad day, and we would be losing 7-1. to one. And I would pitch the fifth, the sixth, the seventh, and it would go from five to one to five to three to five to four to seven, you know, to seven, six. And all of a sudden we have a lead and I get, I get taken out and let the, you know, the, the dangerous guys come in because it's very unusual to, to, to get four wins as a, you know, mop up is probably not the right term, but, but I was a long reliever and kind of the last guy, but the offense just bailed us out night after night. You got that first win at Yankee Stadium. Was that a little bit surreal? I mean, to do it at home and to do it in the house that Ruth built. Yeah, and it was my first time ever at Yankee Stadium. So we had kind of, my teammates and I made a pact. And when we were in Norwich, Connecticut, which is only two hours from the Bronx, we just said, hey, you know, on days off, they offered us to come to Yankee games. And, and we just said, you know what? I, I don't want to go to a game until I'm there for the right reason. And and so, yeah, that was my first day ever at Yankee Stadium. It's opening day. It's 55,000 fans. You know, I have the game ball and it's not what you want your your first win to look like because they put the line score on there. I think we won 17-13 and it, it was like a football game. But, you know, the wind was blowing out and it was Oakland who was, you know, really good at the time. And David Cohn just had a really bad start. I found myself in the game in like the third inning and pitched the third, fourth, fifth. And, you know, it was kind of a a, a a heavyweight brawl where, you know, it, it wasn't pretty, but yeah, to, to, to be the winning pitcher at Yankee Stadium opening, home opening day, 1998, now that I know what that team went on to do was, was pretty, pretty awesome. Time was kind of ticking uh, because you, you said in the past, and I quote, I remember Joe, when I got called up for Mariano, he basically said, hey, you're here for eight days. As soon as Mariano is healthy, you're going back to Columbus. Joe Torre seemed just he seemed like he could tell for the, the team, and he always knew what was best. What What did you gather from him in in the the quick meetings that you had with him? Because you were kind of up and down. I just appreciated the candor, right? I mean, the the biggest complaint that most professional baseball players have is is they they're they're not they're not told where they stand, and there's a lack of transparency, and a lot of it is ego, right? Like people think that they're a 280 hitter and they're really a 240 hitter. I knew that I didn't make the team. And I knew that I wasn't going to take Mariano Rivera's job. But, you know, I did think maybe, you know, if Darren Holmes faltered, I would get an opportunity to, to be the middle guy. And so what Joe Torrey's communication did was, A, it treated me like a man and just said, hey, man, don't don't try to do too much. And it really took some pressure off of you because he, he basically said, it doesn't matter if you throw 10 innings and don't give up a hit, or you can throw 10 innings and give up 20 hits. It doesn't matter. When, when, when Mariano's ready, you're going back to Trump AAA. And so it, it prevented you from trying to do too much. And so, you know, Joe was really good at, at telling you not what you wanted to hear, but telling you what you needed to hear. And I think being a player himself and, you know, again, you know, I tell people my daughter could have made out the lineup card for the 98 Yankees and they'd have won 122 games. But what Joe was able to do, you know, I, I just think back and I use this, uh, I talk about teamwork all the time. You know, the, the, two, the two guys on the bench, the two guys that never started for that team were Tim Raines and Chili Davis. And so we're talking about like 30 year career between the two of them. That's right. And so they were both in the, you know, the 20th year in the big leagues. They had played in like 15 all-star games between them. And their job was to sit on the bench and be ready to pinch hit. 
and to, you know, to talk to Clay Bellinger and Ricky Lede and Derek Jeter and talk to them about being professional and how you handle yourself and what to look for and, you know, what pitchers are going to throw what. And so, you know, those guys had no ego whatsoever. And so for me to come in and just keep my mouth shut and know that my job was to, 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 to eat innings when innings needed to be eaten. I didn't, I didn't care what my ERA was. I just knew that the best way I was going to help the team was to take the ball every time that Joe Torre needed me to. And when he sits you down and says, Hey man, I need you. I need you here. You're happy to do it because you know, you trust him. Is it true that during a doubleheader, you discovered that you were going to get sent back down to the minors between games? And and what does that do to your psyche? Is that is that kind of awkward for you? Um, no. You know, at that stage, you're a professional athlete. And so that's part of the game. Um, I knew we were in Oakland. We were very thin. We didn't have many arms left. And and that was another. So Joe Torre, I hadn't started a baseball game in over two seasons because I was a, I'd been moved to the bullpen. I was a reliever. In AAA, I was a closer, so I was throwing one inning, one inning, one inning. But we're in Oakland, and Joe says, "Hey, I need you to start, and you know we're gonna we're gonna need a, a you know some innings out of you because there's only two arms available in the bullpen, and it's the first game of a doubleheader." And so I was pretty tunnel visioned on just, "Hey, I got to face Oakland's lineup and get through this first game." I gave up five runs in the in the first inning, and honestly, I had two outs and a runner on second, and there was a line drive to right field and. And Paul O'Neill came in. It would have been a heck of a catch. He, he didn't make it. And, you know, after the inning, he comes in and says, hey, man, I should I, I catch that ball nine times out of ten. I totally screwed you. But they went on to score five runs. And Mel Stottlemyre came out to the mound probably after they had scored the third one and said, hey, man, like, I need you to get through this. Like, I, I can't go to the bullpen. And I said, yeah, I, I got you. And, uh, and I ended up pitching five scoreless after that. So I threw, I ended up throwing six innings, gave up five runs. We scored 10 runs in the top of the ninth to win the game <laughs> as typical 98 Yankees would. Daryl Strawberry hit a pinch hit grand slam off of their closer. I threw like 120 pitches. I hadn't thrown more than 30 probably in two years. And uh, the game ended. We celebrated and they gave me my plane ticket, you know, and, and Joe Torrey, to his credit, said, hey, man, you did everything we needed you to do. That was really, you know, courageous and can't thank you enough. But we need to activate Mike Jerzenbeck because he's starting game two and we need your roster spot. And so, you know, again, it was, that, that's how the business of, of baseball works. And, you know, I, I went back to AAA and iced my arm for a few days and, and, and got called back up, you know, a week later. How do you remain focused? You had six call-ups that year. Is it, is it tough to stay focused because you're up, you're down, you're up, you're down? No. And for me, it comes back to the wrestling examples and, and playing football and and I was very lucky. Uh, the one of our um, the hitting coach in AAA that year in Columbus was a guy named Gary Denbo, and tons of respect for Gary. He, he went on to coach in the, the major leagues. I think he's with Derek Jeter now in, in Florida. And um, when I got called up that first time and had the rough debut where I gave up four runs and then got the win on opening day, and then Mariano was healthy, and I went back to AAA, and and Gary Denbo sat me down on the end of the bench. I was out getting the early work in, and Gary came up to me and he said, "Hey." Uh, there's, there's two ways to respond to this. You know, one was come out here and do early work like you did. And because you, you've had a taste of what it's like to pitch in the Bronx and you're pretty hell bent on getting back there. So the other one is you can pout and think that you're getting screwed out of, you know, you should still be up there. And the next time they need somebody, it may not be you. And so I'll never forget that. He just said, hey, keep working hard so that every time that they need a right-handed pitcher, they don't even say who else is pitching well in Columbus. They just pick up the phone and say, 
we need Mike Buddy back up. Yeah, you're the go-to guy at that point. Yeah, and you know what? They trusted me, and the, the fact that you know six times that year when that phone rang, it was always, "Hey, let's bring bring Mike back here." Um, says a lot, you know, and it is why I have a World Series ring, and it's why I've got a. It's why my picture is hanging in every athletic store in the mall across the country that that has team pictures of the '98 Yankees, and you know, just fortunate to get the opportunity. Were you on the team for that brawl against the Orioles? Because that's one of the most infamous moments of that season, uh, courtesy of Armando Benitez kind of plunking Tino Martinez. Were you on the team at that point? I was not. So there were three things that that summer that I missed all three. David Wells, perfect game. David Cones, perfect game. And the fight with the Orioles. I missed Cones, um, no-hitter, by one day. And the other two I missed I by God. he had one that season, too. What I didn't miss that was a huge memory from that 98 year was um, we were playing at, at Camden Yards um, on, you know, just a random, I don't even know, Tuesday night. And it was the night that Cal Ripken decided, hey, I'm not going to play. And so I was in the bullpen at Camden Yards the night that Cal Ripken decided, I'm, I'm going to take the night off. And he actually came up and sat in our bullpen between innings, you know, was just talking, talking to us and saying, Man, what a great view from up here. And then and then said, you know what? They're probably going to come back from commercial. And if I'm sitting in the Yankees bullpen, you know, talking with Mariano Rivera and, and these guys, it's probably not going to be received very well by my teammates. So he snuck out. But, you know, there were some, some great memories from that 98 year that uh, I missed some of them. Uh, but then there's others like that that last forever. Well, you talked to guys like Ripken and you talked to some pretty famous Yankees. Did you get a lot of advice as you were kind of easing your way into into major league life? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, David Cohn, who was, you know, came up as a young guy with the Mets and, and had to deal with the, the, the bright lights of New York City. He said something to me once early in my career. He said, just, you know what I wish somebody would have said to me when I was a young guy, my first shot in New York was, if you pretend a, a documentary film crew is following you around everywhere you go, on the field and off the field, you're probably going to make good decisions. And if it's if it's a decision, if it's not something that you would do, if there was a documentary crew following you around, you probably shouldn't do it. I remember that. I remember. That's interesting. Yeah, and and it, it's great because you know I was married at that point, and you know people always ask me about Derek Jeter, and you know some people love him, some people hate him, and I say, listen, there were 1,500 full time photographers in New York City in 1998 through 2005 and their their claim to fame if they could get it would get a get a photograph of Derek Jeter coming out of a club at 2 a.m. tipsy like TMZ before TMZ that's right and and it, and they never got it because he never did it so you know acting like there's a documentary film crew following you around you know I it's I'm the athletic director at Army West Point right now I, I have the same philosophy now because everything that I do reflects on the United States Military Academy and everything we did back then could get you in the doghouse with George Steinbrenner or the doghouse with your family or your, you know, you, you represent so much more than yourself. Um, and then the other great piece of advice that I got uh, was from Graham Lloyd, who was my bullpen buddy at the time. And it was brilliant because I'd never thought about it this way. And I had played in 400 professional venues at this point. And we were going to, uh, gosh, I don't remember where we were. Maybe, may, may, might've been Seattle. And Graham said, uh, oh, it was Toronto because it, it was a dome. And Graham, we were out on the mound. He said, hey, make sure you, you know where your front foot needs to be when your hand is at, at, at the peak. And I said, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, 
well, you know, you know where your arm slot needs to be the minute your front foot hits the ground, right? And I was like, I guess. Like, I've always just felt it. And he said, well, Toronto's bullpen mound is about two inches taller than all the other mounds. And so Graham, who had been in the big leagues for probably nine years at that point, he knew every mound of every stadium around the country. And, and they are all different, right? Some of them have a steeper drop. Some of them have a gradual drop. Some of them are higher. Some of them are lower. Some of them have big holes and where your foot lands. And so Graham simplified it and just said, if your front foot hits the ground at the exact same time when your arm slot is, is right here, it doesn't matter what the mound is and the height, like you're going to have the same strike zone and your ball is going to be knee high. And, uh, and that was just like this insight that I'm just like, that's crazy. Like, it's crazy that he had thought about every mound. He had a chart. He had a notebook. He knew which mounds were high, which mounds were low, which mounds have clay in the landing, you know, and it was... And it was brilliant, really, because at that point, it was the first time I thought about my actual delivery and how the height of the mound and the slope of the mound would affect. Because if you think about it, you go to a lower mound and the pitch that used to be knee high is now thigh high. And the difference between a knee high fastball and a thigh high fastball in the major leagues is the difference between a a single and a home run. That's interesting. You mentioned Steinbrenner, too. Did you have much interaction with him? And and what what was he like? Because he was a character. Yeah, I probably had more interaction with him than most, you know, generic extra rookies um, because because I'm from Cleveland and, and he grew up just outside of Cleveland and their first business was in the shipyards of Cleveland. So so he would come through at spring training. Um, he was very eccentric. When he was in a good mood, he would come through the locker room and chat up everybody and he would always call me the Cleveland kid. And, and you know, let's not, let's not kid ourselves. I was making the league minimum and I had very little expectation. So, you know, it wasn't like... It wasn't like I was I was blowing games left and right. And so he called me the Cleveland kid and we, he'd walk through and, you know, we'd, we'd talk about whatever was going on in Ohio. And he was, I got to know him a little bit in that strike season of 94 because he had a place in Tampa and, and we had that team that was really good that played in Tampa. So he would come watch a lot of our games because he was just jonesing for baseball and, you know, got to know him a little bit. You know, not the not the Seinfeld character version of George Steinbrenner, but the, the human the human element, and uh, he did a lot of good things for a lot of people. You're left off the postseason roster, but you remain an alternate, which means that you basically have to be ready as you've been all season, just if called upon. Are you watching every pitch, or are you just checking box scores the next day? What's your mindset at that point? I was watching every pitch. You know, there there there's the the selfish aspect of um, you know playoff shares. You know, there's a, there's a financial reason to pay attention because the deeper into the playoffs you go, the the more money each player gets. Yeah, I didn't think of that. And so I knew, you know, I certainly wanted us to win for for obviously more than just that reason. Um, ironically, the team votes on that, and so I didn't know at the time um, when when the playoffs started, as you mentioned, I w- they sent me back to Tampa to continue to stay in shape and pitch to hitters. The team has a closed door meeting, just the 25 guys on the postseason roster, and they vote, hey, you know, what is what, what are we going to if we if we win a World Series, a full share is going to be whatever the amount was. What do we want to give to Mike Buddy, who was here for 106 days and, you know, won four games? Or what are we going to give to, you know, Clay Bellinger, who filled in as a utility infielder for 13 days? And what are we giving to Homer Bush? And so. We don't know what those discussions are like. We don't know what they vote. They also vote on, do they get a ring if we win the World Series? And so I'm down in Tampa. I'm watching every pitch. Um, Certainly, you know, listening for any chatter like, hey, somebody had a stiff back this morning, (laughs) thinking, 
am I going to have to get on a plane to go out to, to San Diego for the World Series? Ended up not happening. But, you know, I, because I was there, um, I got to know a, our first round pick from that year, a guy named Ryan Bradley, who was who was scheduled to be an extra or a, a character in a Kevin Costner movie that offseason. And I happened to be there when his agent called and said, hey, you need to commit to doing this. And he said, I can't because I'm getting married. And I said, hey, dude, tell him I'll do it. And uh, it ended up getting me a pretty good offseason gig. Yeah, you were you were you not only were um, featured as an actor in For Love of the Game, but you did a little bit of of kind of just helping out with with Costner, right, and making sure that he he looked like a ball player. Yeah, and and honestly, um, he didn't need a whole lot of help. But yeah, I was I was kind of there for continuity to to make it look and feel like it would be he would be a major league pitcher, and and he was really good. Um, you know, he's pretty really good athlete, and so. You know, the wear and tear of filming, you know, pitching scenes every day, you know, physically kind of took his toll. But but he just asked, you know, very little nuanced questions like, hey, is this something a, a 20 game winner in the big leagues would do? And um, so, yeah, I got to work with him. More importantly, my wife got to meet Kevin Costner and, and hang out at Yankee Stadium with him for a few hours. And um, and it was pretty cool. Right. I mean, it was it was probably six weeks of filming. They put us up at the Waldorf Astoria for every night for six weeks. And then the movie came out. I'm in it for, you know, between two to three seconds. Um, and you're on the Yankees, correct? In the movie. Yeah, and it's true to life, right? I'm, I, I took the loss that day, too. I'm the losing pitcher. Um, <laughs> but yeah, my, my, my character, I was Jack Spellman, and I was, I was uh, a, a Cy Young Award candidate. And so it was, uh, it was pretty cool to see that. So that whole year of 1998 was just a dream at every turn, right? It was my, my debut in the major leagues. Um, on a team that ended up becoming the winningest, winningest team in the history of Major League Baseball. And then for fun in the offseason, I get a gig working for Universal Studios and a Kevin Costner and Kelly Preston feature film. So it, it was a pretty good year. It's all been downhill from there. Well, I got to ask because I'm actually kind of an, an evil dead nerd and Sam Raimi directed that directed for Love of the Game. Uh, do you remember anything of his direction? And do you have any, any re- memories stick out with him? <laughs> Absolutely. So... Sam is a phenomenal guy, and I'll tell you what I took away was you can you can be really good at what you do even if you have no comprehension of the subject matter. So Sam Raimi knows how to make pictures, and you know he's he's done a lot of action type you know films up to that point, and this was kind of like a sporty love story. So there's a great scene in the movie that that didn't make it to the final cut where the New York Yankees manager comes out to the mound and he's, he's, he's going to take me out of the game, but, but I, I'm talking him out of it, right? Because again, I'm, I'm a Cy Young candidate. The Yankees manager was played by Augie Garrido, the legendary college baseball coach from Texas. And so Augie comes out and, uh, and uh, Sam Raimi meets us at the mound and Sam says something to the effect of, okay, so boss person, when you come out to the throwing man, what are some things that the throwing man would want to say to you? And what, as the boss, what would you say to him? Um, and like, how would that dialogue take place? And so Augie and I look at each other like, you mean like what, what happens at a mound visit? And so we kind of play it up and he's just like, I love it. So mic him up. <laughs> and of course, we're all sitting here. We had heard the rumor that if you actually have a line in the movie, you get bumped into like this higher Screen Actors Guild pay rate. So I'm like, sweet, I'm going to have a line. And of course, we we do a we do a take, and it was it was kind of it was PG, and all the other players on the set were like, dude, either make it like a real mound visit, 
or like, don't do it. And so, so my lines were like a, a stream of F-bombs and, you know, me just arguing with, with the manager at the time. But it was just so great to hear Sam Raimi come out there and say, okay, so baseball throwing man and boss, you know, he just had no idea that it was a pitcher and a manager um, and he didn't need to because he's Sam Raimi. Did the string of F-bombs make it into the film or were they cut? They were cut. And so, again, at this point, my, my grandparents are still alive. You know, I'm married, but I don't have kids. So I go to bed that night and I'm thinking, holy cow, like my grandmother's going to go see this movie and here I'm going to be on the big screen dropping F-bombs. You know, someday I'm going to probably have kids and they're going to be like, who is this person? So I did get the DVD to see if it made like the outtakes or anything. And there's there's no sign of it. So probably, probably better that way. As far as the, the celebration would go, did you go back up to New York or get involved with the team at any point in the postseason before they had officially won the World Series? No. So I was in Tampa all the way through game four. It was a sweep. You know, we, we won game four. Series was over. I actually um, stayed in Tampa one more day and then went back to North Carolina because I only had like three days before filming was going to start in New York City. So I, did, I, would, I wasn't invited to the parade or anything like that. Ironically, my first week that I'm, I'm doing the movie, um, we're staying, as I said, at the Waldorf and my wife and I are walking around and it's a Saturday afternoon and there's this line of people um, near Times Square. And my wife, again, you know, this is, I had pitched in 20 games as a Yankee and nobody knew who I was, which was great because we could walk around Manhattan. But my wife turns to me and says, listen, I know you don't like to do it, but can you can you go and just drop the Yankee bomb and just go to the front of the line and say, listen, I play for the Yankees, you know, uh, you know, they did just win the World Series. Maybe somebody will recognize you and whatever this line is for is probably something cool. So so we walk up to the front of the line and I said, hey, listen, bud, you know, the, the velvet rope, it's the quintessential New York. Well, it's the TV studio. And I said, hey, listen, I play for the Yankees. And, you know, what is this for? And they said, oh, it's the, the rehearsal for Saturday Night Live. And I said, hey, is there any way we could go up? He said, wait right here. What was your name again? And he comes back. He says, right this way, Mr. Buddy. And so he escorts us up into Lorne Michaels' office. And they open the curtains. And they're like, just, you know, you can see the stage from here. Make yourself at home. The host, some of his family is going to come up here and sit. So the host was Ben Stiller. So my wife and I are sitting in Lorne Michaels' office. And the door opens. And Ben Stiller's dad comes walking in, who is George Costanza's dad on Seinfeld. Jerry Stiller. Why did you trade Jay Buhner? Jay Buhner. Del Boca Vista. <laughs> yes, face two. So he comes in and we're just, you know, my wife and I are looking at each other like, we're just hanging out in Lorne Michaels' office. Well, the opening dialogue comes out. Ben Stiller's doing his thing. And the, 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 the crowd starts going nuts because in the background, Tino Martinez and Derek Jeter and David Wells and David Cohn come out. So we had no idea that there was four Yankees on the SNL that night, but that was the reason they actually let us up because they figured... They must have gone up to, you know, David Cohn and said, hey, there's some dude named Mike Buddy out there who says he played for the Yankees. And he was just like, yeah, let him up. But but that was pretty cool, right? I mean, that's just like, it's like a, perfect timing. No doubt. You know, no you doubt. couldn't have planned it any better if you tried. And that's the last time dropping the Yankee bomb ever worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> Does it stick with you at all, stick in your crawl that you don't get to celebrate in the parade and kind of do? I mean, you were just as important during the regular season. You played a vital role in, in specific games. No. It certainly didn't then, right? Because, you know, they, they won. I had all that other stuff going on. I probably would have been more happy going back to North Carolina and, and getting fresh clothes 
and and recharging and seeing family before going up there. But um, you know, I, I wasn't in it for the parade. You know, it was I knew what I had done, and honestly, I had already shifted gears trying to figure out a way that I was going to make that team in '99 coming out of spring training. And you know, I had had like Gary Denbo said, I had gotten a taste of it, and and I was I was going to do whatever I could to try to get in a position. And then you know, little did I know. You know, half the half not not half. Several guys on that team the next year that that made the team were doing steroids, and and I didn't know it at the time. Like that was the the naivete that I was playing in the middle of the steroid era, and I thought there was six or seven guys in the league that were doing it. I, I had no idea that there was six or seven guys on every team that were doing it, and that was that was, was disappointing. It wasn't something that was kind of open in the locker room. Like it wasn't not at all. No, it was it was. Completely a surprise when when the Mitchell report came out and some of those names. Yeah, you know, there were some, right? I mean, Barry Bonds, you know, he gained forty pounds of muscle at, at the age of thirty eight, and you know, there were some pitchers that got really big, went from throwing ninety their whole career, and now now they're throwing ninety eight. But there were just a lot of others. Is that is that tough to see though? Because I mean, these they're, they're still humans, all right. They're not robots. Like people expect athletes to be like robots. They still have feelings, and some of those guys that were lesser known that weren't making the money of Barry Bonds and whatnot, their names still got drugged through the mud. That's right. Is it tough for you to see that to, with guys that, that are on the slightly lower end journeyman that, that you're friends with? Yeah, you know what? It, it goes back and forth. You know, so, Some of those guys signed three-year deals for, for $15 million based on the strength of steroids or um, HGH. And so you know, I didn't get that opportunity. You know, I, there's some jealousy in me that says, hey, I wish it would have been a level playing field to see if I could have made a team. Doesn't keep me up at night for sure. But yeah, I mean, and at the time, that stuff really wasn't policed. I mean, human growth hormone, if you wanted to do it, do it. Like, I I wouldn't want to put that in my body because you just don't know what, what the long-term effects would be. But it wasn't like... Yeah, but it was like the wild, wild west. That's right, because they weren't they weren't really testing for it. And then they started testing for it. Anybody that continued to do it after they were testing for it, and there weren't many. I mean, most guys kind of, you know, took their took their medicine and said, hey, you know what, I screwed up. I, I did it. I shouldn't have done it. And they stopped doing it. But yeah, it was, uh, it, was, it was definitely the wild, wild west for a little while there. And what have you been doing with life after baseball? I know you mentioned you're the athletic director at West Point. Is that taking, I'm sure that's taking up most of your time at this point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I retired. Um, I had Tommy John surgery in 2003. I retired in 2004, went back, graduated from college as a 34-year-old father of two. Good for you. I, I, had, a, I had one semester left and I wanted to work in college athletics and, and you have to have a college degree to do that. So so I finished up and then stepped away from the game and, and started working in college athletics at my alma mater down at Wake Forest. And did it for about 10 years. Um, started as a fundraiser and then went into administration and uh, got my first athletic director job um, in 2015 at Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. Did it for four years and then got the opportunity to come do the same thing here at, at Army West Point up in West Point, New York, and uh, have been here two years. And it's it's awesome, you know, being surrounded by, you know, I went from being surrounded by New York Yankees and Milwaukee Brewers, and now I'm surrounded by young men and women who are who are training to uh to go fight our country's battles and, and win them and so getting to real heroes that's right and so you know i'm inspired every day by these kids and you know my job is to give them a division one experience because none of the kids that come to west point are doing it to improve their draft stock or you know to to get ready for the nfl combine like these kids are coming here to 
to, to train and, and put themselves potentially in harm's way and, you know, protect our way of life. And so it's humbling every day. But, but meanwhile, while they're here, this is the last four years that they're going to get to do, to compete in a sport that they love. And so whether it's lacrosse or football or basketball or tennis, um, you know, my job is to make sure that, that they feel supported. And, you know, the tennis player works just as hard at his or her game you know, the same amount of time that our starting point guard and starting quarterbacks do. They just don't get to play in front of 55,000 fans like I got to do in the Yankee Stadium. And so we try to just provide them uh, memories that will last them a lifetime. And, and then they, they go out into the real world and they, they kick ass and, and make us proud. You didn't have a military background, correct? So is that is that intimidating to come into something like that? Because, I mean, just being up there and seeing a game there, it was it was a little bit intimidating. It's very intimidating. Yeah. And so... You know, I, I'm fortunate that my boss is a three-star general who, who, who's still very connected to civilian life. And, and by that, I just mean he, he knows that everybody here uses uh, abbreviations and acronyms for everything. And so when I'm in the room, he makes them all slow down and say, hey, Mike Buddy doesn't know what CTLT is. Like, you need to explain that to him. Um, and so I, I could use that on some of those emails I was getting. I was, <laughs> I was seeing some letters and I'm trying to figure out what the letters are. Yeah, it's, it's phenomenal. But it's the Army's way. So, you know, it is their own little world. But, but I feel very valued. And, and the, the, the people here, colonels and generals, they go out of their way to say, hey, the person to run our athletic department can't be a military person. Like we need somebody who can schedule football games with Notre Dame and knows who to call at the NCAA for eligibility questions. And, you know, all these little things that... It's kind of a college, but it's not really a college. Um, but they, they know that, uh, that they need kind of a, a civilian athletics person. And so I feel very supported and very fortunate to have the opportunity. We end every podcast with the, uh, with the same question. Where do you keep your two World Series rings and do you wear them often? So I keep them in a safe. I rarely, rarely wear them. I started out in college athletics as a fundraiser. And invariably, you know, when I would go to visit people or, you know, do a happy hour or whatever, people were always saying, hey, can we see your World Series ring? Because, you know, it's a small world and I was an alum. And so they said, so I kept it in my sunglasses bag hanging from my gear shift. And after about six years, you know, my wife said, you know, hey, dumbass, um, if somebody steals your car, your World Series ring's gone. And so I stopped keeping it in my sunglasses case and I put it in the safe, but um, there are very few times, you know, I'm only 40 miles from the city now where I am in, at West Point. So if I do wear it, it might be, you know, to, to venture into to Manhattan. And, but I probably haven't worn it since the 20th reunion of that 1998 team that we had at Yankee Stadium a few years ago. You're the seventh athlete that I've interviewed and the first one to actually say you keep it in a safe. A couple of them didn't know where it was. A couple of them, their parents had it. It's, it's funny, I mean, but then again, it, it, it varies because a, a ring was a lot different for a guy, a Houston Rockets guy that won in 1995 as opposed to a ring now because you can barely fit it on your finger. So I don't know if maybe there's not as much of that knowing exactly how much it's worth. I mean, there's a sentimentality to it, definitely, but as far as a value to it, there wasn't as much in the past as there definitely is now. Yeah, there's no doubt. The, the idea that the ring represents is a heck of a lot more valuable than than the ring itself well listen mike we want to thank you for uh for taking a few minutes to speak with us today and just kind of relive in the past and some of those some of those yankees glories days 
Yeah, I loved it. I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you reaching out. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to I One Two. This podcast is produced by Ed Miller and me, Max Morgan of Malix Media. I One Two is available wherever podcasts are found. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a review. You can find us on Instagram at I One Two Podcast. Until next time. 